You're listening to the Cannabis Investing Network. Before we begin, a short disclaimer. The full disclaimer follows at the end of this episode. This podcast is a general communication and is being provided for entertainment and information purposes only. It is educational in nature and is not designed to be a recommendation for any specific investment strategy, plan, feature, or other purpose. Please enjoy responsibly. Hello and welcome back to the Cannabis Investing Network podcast. My name is Manish and today we are joined by the new and improved, now 20% more efficient host. His name is Abby. (laughs) 20% more efficient. How'd you get that number? Oh, well, because there's 20% uh, more of you or less of you. I'm not sure. Oh, well, depending on my portfolio, I'm not sure either (laughs) anymore either. (laughs) What a roller coaster of a week it's been, eh? Yeah, what, what, it's only Monday, and yet it's been a roller coaster week. Oh man, yeah, that's uh, <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Monday night, April twelfth. Uh, today, uh, Afria earnings came out. Was a big miss. Made a, a very rough waters for the entire cannabis industry. Tomorrow, which is Tuesday, uh, Organigram earnings come out. Probably not going to be a whole lot better. And will range from you know abysmal to subpar. I am guessing <laughs> uh, this podcast won't come out till Wednesday, so we'll see. But um, you know, very very painful few weeks uh, for cannabis investors, uh, and I'm sure there's a lot of people uh, listening who are you know worried and having doubts. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm one of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, you never listen, so I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, that that's why I'm starting to listen now. You know, when you see a yeah. sea of red, I'm like, okay, let's, that's time to go back on this internet. Yeah, that's that, right. Uh, you know. Let's see what's going on over here. Yeah, exactly. So, so look, I mean, today's episode, uh, it's going to be a fun one. It, it's a little bit of story time. And, it, you know, it, it comes from a, um, a comment that I saw uh, from last week's episode about, hey, like, what's everybody so scared about? And somebody was like, you know, you know, sure, it's easy to say that if you're if you're up, you know, big time, right? If if you were part of the wave and and um, you're up, then you know this pullback doesn't feel so bad, right? But uh, this guy said, well, I bought, you know, during the the hype of the wave, you know, like, and so I'm a bag holder, and and I'm you know I'm concerned or whatever, right? And um, you know that was that was a really interesting comment to me because, you know, if you kind of unpack what this person is saying you know, you kind of flip it around to them and you go, well, okay, so what did we learn? Right. Or and why did you buy when you bought? Exactly. And so hopefully what you, what, what that person is going to learn is that, you know, you don't always just buy because something, you know, you hear a good story or whatever. Hopefully what they learn is that sometimes this speculative fever takes hold of you. You know, it doesn't mean it's a good idea to put all your money in. Right. And that pullbacks happen. So you should be careful and you should have a margin of safety and you should maybe not put all your money in on day one. For sure. For sure. And, you know, we we've talked about this quite a few times. And it's one of the biggest things that I do is when I'm looking at entering a position, I get it. Okay, I'm going to enter this much money into it Mm -hmm. and I'll slowly trickle in. Right. Because like we we come on here and we say it all the time. You're never going to catch the top. You're never going to catch the bottom. The only time you're going to catch the top is when you're buying. And the only time you're going to catch the bottom is when you're selling. Right. And we've lived through that. 
And so Very that's kind of so. been the inspiration of this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and for anyone who's listening right now, like man, if you're seeing hype, like, like if you're seeing just exponential growth, you should be taking like risk off the table. You should be selling. And you know, I, we've, we've now been saying this for what, for at least the last like three months. Just that people should be taking risk off the table. Yeah, like, well, you should be managing your portfolio and not just buying stocks, right? That's the biggest thing that I that I would like to say is that, like, and what I mean by managing your portfolio is that, like, remember, when you enter a position, you should also have a target price of when you're going to exit that position. Like, so many people just blindly buy a stock and because they're like, oh, their friend said, oh, it's going to go to $4 and let's say the stock is $1 right now. They just buy it and they expect it to go to $4. It might not go to $4, right? If you do a little bit of research, you might be like, oh, okay, well, you know, I think this company is actually fairly valued at $2. When it hits $2, you know, you don't, you might not necessarily sell right away, but you should revalue the stock or like at least take some of the money out of the, uh, out of, uh, take some of the money out of the position. Right. And, and, you know, there's a couple interesting things you said there that we'll unpack later on. But like, you know, if you just listen to what Abby said, I mean, you know, when somebody says that the stock is worth $4, how do you get there? Right. Why is it worth $4? Right. And, and mm-hmm. is it just numbers on a screen? Is it technical analysis or is there a real fundamental reason why the stock is going to be worth $4 times the shares outstanding? Mm-hmm. Right. And, um, you know, Abby, you've always been very good throughout, you know, the ups and downs of, of saying, look, take profits, take profits, take profits. You know, I've been uh, not, nec- not necessarily saying that, but I've been saying, look, keep some cash, right? Hedge by keeping cash because of the speculative nature of the market. For sure. And I mean, look, listen, hedging by keeping cash is a luxury that very few can afford, especially not in retail, right? Usually when a lot of retail investors come in, um, the capital that they can deploy is limited. So what I always tell people, especially if, if not tell people, but like, you know, you know, obviously, you know, your own financial situation better than we do. Um, but, you know, if you're up on a position, it's not, it's, it's okay to sell. And I've, what I've started noticing, at least amongst my group of friends, uh, my group of friends, not the ones who are in the industry, but the ones who are sort of uh, doing this now as like, as a hobby. And some of them have, are up quite a bit, not just in cannabis, but in, in other small cap stocks. And they'll still call me and they'll be like, what should I do with this position? And I'm like, hey, man, you're up 5x. Like, sell half of it. And they're like, well, no, I could still go up. And I'm just like blown away that that's how they're thinking. And then I'll have people who are down on a position like 30, 40%. They'll be like, hey, man, like, what should I do in this position? And I'd be like, honestly, like, if you don't see any near-term catalysts, sell the position. They're like, oh, no, 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 no it's going to do okay. And it's just like a, such like a weird psyche and i'm just like okay like what is your exit price for the position that you're up 5x in what was it when you entered and most of them were like oh i was you know let's say the stock's at a dollar and they got in at 20 cents like oh it was 50 cents Mm -hmm. it's like dude you've doubled your exit price like you know what made you continue to hold and if it's just momentum and hype then don't be shocked when it comes back down right it's a a good point and you're actually you know, foreshadowing uh, one of the stories I'm going to tell um, about how a, a favorite stock of mine went from thirty cents to six dollars, and then round trip almost all the way back, right? And, to thirty and, cents, yeah, yeah, and, and you know the emotions involved in that, right? So that's the the agenda for today is we're going to be talking about some of these stories, right, and just talking about what we've been through because, you know, I said this last week, and and I think some people might not get it, but if you just started investing in the space in 2020, you've had a very blessed investing career. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, 
those of us who who've been invested and lived through you know 17 18 19 you know, there was a lot of good. There was a lot of bad, right? So we, we have a lot of wins. We have losses. We have battle scars. And I think we're better for it. And and that's what we're going to be talking about today is kind of that, you know, you know, the joy of seeing things go parabolic and then the the disgusting pit in your stomach of watching it go the other way, right? <laughs> um, but ultimately, I do think those experiences are really, really important as an investor. Um, and And I think you know, if you're newer to the industry or newer to our podcast, it might just give you some good context of why we, you know, say some of the things we say. And it's because of the lessons we've learned. Now, those lessons might be, you know, right, they might be wrong, um, but they are true for us. And -hmm. I think they serve us well, and they constantly evolve. For sure. And listen, I've learned the best lessons for my losers. I'll tell you that. Yeah, I, I mean, I've learned uh, you know, you don't really, you don't really learn that much when you have a big win, right? You, you usually learn that you're a genius and, you know, you're God's gift to investing and, you know, move over Warren Buffett, you know, you're, you're next. Yeah, right? exactly. You give your two weeks notice. You're like, man, how do you, how do you guys do this <laughs> nine to five? You know how it is. I don't know how y'all do this nine to five stuff. Okay. Yeah, I'm, on exactly. to the, I'm on to the next one. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, but when you lose or even when things just go down then people ask what's going on and to jump forward a little bit i remember the first um i remember actually talking to an institutional money manager at a conference um and this must have been uh late 19 when the, when the industry was really get you know not the industry but the stocks of the industry were really getting hammered and uh and I remember the institutional investor telling me, he's like, he's like, yeah, you know, when this happens, um, we review our portfolio and we make sure that we know what we own. And he kind of laughed, right? And I laughed mm-hmm. too. And it was, it was, it was, you know, one of the lessons was that institutional investors, you know, we think because they manage more money, you know, they're, they're, you know, if they manage 10 times or a hundred times more money, they're 10 times or a hundred times more sophisticated, but that's not, that's not the reality. Right. Because ultimately they are people, they're governed by the emotions of people mm-hmm. and they manage other people's money. Right. So other people, um, you know, have be- behave the same way as the retail investor. When things are going up, they don't ask too many questions. When things are going down, they ask a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. So what this institutional manager uh, was admitting to me is that, hey, like, you know, when the market was good, we kind of bought things here and there without looking too hard. And now that it's going the other way, we want to really, really be sure what we own. For sure. And that's something that you would never, ever, ever, ever guess from an institutional uh, money manager, right? You just assume that they always know what they own, that they do this all the time. But it's funny to see that, you know, they're just exactly. And, you know, I trust that person. I don't know that person particularly well, but I, I, you know, I trust them a lot more after they shared that with me because that was very human of them to admit that, right? Whereas, you know, somebody could have easily said, well, I don't have this problem because, you know, everything we have is gold and I triple yeah. check everything we do. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right? So let's get into the actual story. So I'm, I'm going to start just by talking about how I got started in the industry and, and tell, you know, just a couple of um, kind of paint a little bit of a picture and then Abby, I'll, I'll hand it over to you to kind of jump in. But, um, you know, I've told the story many times. The first two stocks I ever bought in cannabis um, was the summer of 17. I bought Afria and I bought Canopy. I did um, 
very little to no research. I knew nothing about the industry. I simply, you know, had the thought, you know, discussion with a friend of mine about how once cannabis is legal and you have actual branded product, it's going to be really um, beneficial for consumers because instead of buying, you know, random moonshine weed in a baggie, you're buying an actual branded product. Um, and then once you know sort of what your strain and product is, you know, and you know what agrees with you, uh, that will be a seminal moment for consumers, mm -hmm. uh, not only regular consumers, but new consumers who, you know, when I talk to a lot of my friends who, um, you know, were pretty open minded about drugs, weed was something a lot of them didn't like because, you know, they they'd had a, a bad edible experience or they'd smoked a joint at a party and passed out one time or something. Right. And they, so basically the experience that they had was sort of unreliable. And the lesson they learned was, Hey, don't smoke weed because it affects, it can affect me in X, Y, Z way that I don't want. And it can ruin my night. Right. So once you had proper branded product that, you know, you know, now we have, for example, you can go and find products that aren't, they don't even tell you the strain. It's just, tells you the effect, right? Sleep, yeah. rest, revive, energy, bliss, whatever it is, right? Uh, so that was the sort of big picture thesis was just to say, once this happens, once we have this, I think it's, I think people are underestimating how big it's going to be, okay? And then with very little research, jumped into essentially what were two of the biggest companies at the time, which was Canopy and Afria. And uh, back then, I think Canopy was trading around seven bucks Canadian and Afria was about five bucks Canadian. And so very little research got into the industry. Uh, didn't really think about it again. Within six months uh, or maybe even four months, uh, my positions had uh, tripled. And I was like, wow, like this is, uh, this is amazing. Like, and at the time I didn't feel like, oh my God, I've, I've, you know, I kill, you know, I did anything amazing. I just said, Hey, I, right place, right time. I, you know, I invested at a good time and, and here I am getting lucky basically. Right. And, um, Abby, I don't know if you remember this time, but what set the industry on fire was constellation brands showed up and did like a $200 million investment into canopy. Yep. Right. So that was the, the gun going off. That was the smoke signal to the entire world hey, this cannabis thing is not to be ignored. You know, the maker of Corona is showing up and investing several hundred million dollars to get into the industry. Um, and then the question obviously is who's next, right? So overnight, all of the equity values just went to the moon. Yeah. And uh, around this time in kind of late uh, 2017, I get introduced to Medifarm Labs. And I end up, you know, initially having a discussion with them about commercial real estate, but, you know, they're very persuasive sales guys and they pitched me on the opportunity of investing in a private round of the company, um, which was pre-licensed at this point. And the valuation they put on the company was, I think, 20 or 25 million. But, you know, what today would have been like 30 cents. Yeah. Um, although we didn't, you know, back then you don't think about it like in terms of price, they kind of give you a valuation, right? And the share price yeah. is sort of irrelevant. Um, and, and the funny thing was, you know, the smallest sort of LP that had a license, no revenue or anything, just a license, 
was trading at at least 50 million and, and upwards of that, right? So to me, it was like, okay, I'm getting it at 20 million. I'm pre-licensed. But unless these guys totally screw this up, you know, I've got a, like a two and a half to three times, you know, win on my hands. Right. And the beauty of this was I could fund the deal with uh, some of the money that I had made on Canopy and Afria. So I could, I could take some of that sort of white meat off the table and put it into this new deal. So uh, that was, those are my first three investments. And I didn't really invest in the space for probably another uh, six or eight months or something. I really kind of left those deals alone and said, I have enough money in the sector. Let it, let it run and let's see what happens. Right. But you know, to close off the kind of the first part of the story, um, it was it was fascinating to come into an industry that was brand new, uh, totally speculative. Nobody was, you know, super, super talking about it. It wasn't definitely wasn't discussed in mainstream circles. Um, and then it morphed into this, you know, once that Constellation deal hit, everything changed. And it was amazing to see that uh, evolution and how people went from ignoring an industry to everybody suddenly talking about it and and wanting to know more and wanting to be a part of it. Yeah, and it was exciting at that time too, right? Like um, everything that you're, as you're telling me this story, <clears throat> I'm sort of going down memory lane and getting very nostalgic. Like mm-hmm. when that Constellation brand news was announced, it wasn't it wasn't just a signal like, oh, hey, like Corona manufacturers coming in there. It was a signal to everybody else that was out there, every institutional player. It legitimized the industry in a way where, okay, this isn't just yes. going to be about a, a, a cash crop, mm-hmm. right? These guys are already thinking about products that exist. I mean, like, listen, you know, unless if you were really like a, like an avid pot smoker back then, you, I, I don't think you really had a, a beverage or everybody's had like homemade edibles, but like to the level of sophistication that we have right now, right? Mm-hmm. This sort of forecasted that. And when you're talking about, the branding uh, in terms of, or the placements, or not the branding, the placement in terms of product, where now it's being sold as mood. Do you want to fall asleep? Do you want to be energetic? Before it was indica and sativa, right? That, that was it. And you had to like know all these strains and they had like funny names like Pineapple Express and OG Kush and, and whatnot. Like that, that sure. and so, you know, sitting on, because as you're telling me this, I was sitting on, you know, the finance side and I was like, well, how is somebody who's got OG Kush going to really, how's that really going to get adopted from the masses in the mm-hmm. store? I mean, like obviously mm-hmm. it did, but you know, um, coming back to thinking about that, it was just like, okay, like, you know, what is OG Kush? I just know that it's supposed to be good weed, but like, what does it actually do? Right. right. And so having someone like sort of taking that, removing that element and saying, okay, this is going to get you excited. This is going to get you happy. This is going to calm you down. That is a lot simpler. And so all those little milestones that you're sort of not brushing over, but so that, that you're bringing up, those were monumental in this sector. Yeah, and, and you said something that was uh, great there about you know legitimizing the industry, right? And uh, that's absolutely correct. I, I you know this was a huge piece of validation for the industry. And if Constellation had never invested that quarter billion, uh, sorry, quarter quarter, quarter billion, billion, yeah, yeah, yeah. two yeah. hundred fifty million, um, I don't know where we would be today, because ultimately um, their uh, sacrifice. <laughs> that, the lamb be, that got fleece. <laughs> to be fair, to be fair to them, that first investment, they've actually made a lot of money on that first investment. 
Yeah, but it then, was the didn't later they come investment. back in for another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was a later million? investment that they got they yeah. got killed on, right? But the early investment was done at like thirteen dollars Canadian, which was actually a pretty reasonable uh, price, right? It was like two billion dollars Canadian or something. And it should be noted too, at this point, um, the legislation for um, legalization had not passed yet. You know, they they had said they were going to do it. They were kind of moving towards it. But it had not passed yet. So there was that level of legislative risk involved. Um, and I'm sure there was a lot of people who just said, you know what, let's wait to see what actually happens. Right. Um, and Constellation coming in, you know, they came in pre-legalization. So that was really a big show of confidence that, hey, it's worth putting $250 million into this to figure it out. And if you think about it from their perspective, it wasn't a bad investment. Like it was speculative for sure. It was strategic, but you know, for a, a company that had a, a gigantic war chest of billions and billions of dollars, it wasn't that crazy to say, let's take 250 million, um, put it in this speculative company and let's see, you know, how that evolves. That actually right. makes a lot of sense. And just to sort of go back onto that, I mean, like, listen, we've hammered, I don't think we've done this on air, but like, you know, back and forth, the level of due diligence that Constellation probably did, in my opinion, was very minimal. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm sure that I'm sure they did something that was quite extensive. But this mm-hmm. also just goes to show you why it's important to be first in a nascent industry, because Constellation Brands only had like three names to pick from. So if you're Canopy, Afri, Aurora, you had a 33% chance of getting picked. And they just happened to pick the largest producer. Right. Because they right, thought right. they were mitigating their risk, right? So, you know, um, just keep that in mind because a lot of people who started investing in early 2020 or March 2020, last year, this like last year, um, you've caught some new industries. And just by being there first, you're sort of catching the wave, right? And this sort of happened back in 2016, 17. Yeah, this is late 17. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, fair point. And it's also interesting about, you know, speculative industries and spaces. Um, oftentimes it's good to invest in sort of the leader um, if you're in early days, because capital will often flow to the leader for better or for worse, whether that's warranted or not. You know, and many people, you can look at Canopy and say that was not warranted. Right. Uh, you know, it's easy to say that now looking back, but, you know, at the time it's a lot more uncertain. So like an ex- a metaphor I have for you would be like, you know, in 2017, you know, if you wanted to invest in crypto, um, you know, if you were a crypto aficionado, which which one of my friends was, he mm-hmm. would tell you, listen, don't buy Bitcoin because Bitcoin is actually a little bit outdated. And there's a lot of new currencies like Ethereum, which might be better, you know, mm-hmm. and actually replace Bitcoin in the future. And, you know, my point to him back then was maybe you're right, but I think the real money, the suits and the finance money will go for something that that has the most name recognition and brand yeah, recognition. for sure. For right. Sure. And that's what Bitcoin ended up being, whether or not it's the best cryptocurrency. I have no idea. I have no opinion on. But um, from a from a, a brand perspective, and we've we've talked before about how in the in the capital markets, you know, the brand of your stock is different from the brand of your product. Right. right. But it's still very important for investors. Mm-hmm. Right. And so so even if we fast, you know, fast forward four years later, um, Bitcoin is still sort of the dominant coin. Um, and if you, you know, go on. A stock, the stock market, for example, you can actually buy Bitcoin funds on the on the TSX, um, you know, but you can't buy. That's like very that's fund. very recent, right? 
very recent, but that's just my point is four years later, you know, this currency, which is maybe not the best technology, right. is still the most liquid and most accessible. Yeah. Right. So just talking about speculative industries and, and how things can flow and how, you know, if you're really in the weeds and you were you were in that industry in the front lines, you know, you could have looked at the space and said, hey, people are making a mistake. Canopy is not that good. Um, actually, this little company Supreme is a lot better. Right. But then from a capital markets perspective, you, you wouldn't have made as much money. You would have done better with the big guy who everybody knows. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And then that just further goes to the mm-hmm. fact that, you know, Canopy wasn't the best operator. They didn't have the best flower, but they had the best stock. They had the best stock. Great point. Great point. And so that's, you know, the point of this episode is to distill down to lessons learned. And that for me coming into the, the stock market game really for basically the first time was a super important lesson. Mm-hmm. The difference between the stock and the underlying business. Yeah. Right? Like completely separate animals, theoretically related, but especially in speculative hype-driven markets, very disconnected. In the short very term, 100%. Well, but short term could be a year. It could be two years. Yeah, absolutely. Right. But to us, if I say to you, Abby, remember a year ago when we were in the middle of the pandemic and nobody was allowed to leave the house? That doesn't feel short term. Well, I mean, we're still in the midst of the pandemic. (laughs) I'm still not allowed to leave my house. Fair enough. (laughs) Fair Um, enough. But yeah, no, I I fully agree with you on there. So so keeping the the story moving um, and, and kind of getting to um, you know, some of the lessons. I mean, one of the big lessons that I learned was, you know, the chart is not always right, right? You look at the story and you go, look, you bought something at seven, you know, you sold some at, you know, 32 and then you sold some at 45 and you some sold some at 60. It was an unmitigated bat flip home run, right? right? It was, it was a phenomenal success. Um, And, you know, I walked away thinking, wow, look at me, like, a, you know, and and you often think, okay, I can do it again. And the trouble for me was I did do it again. I, I, the, you know, so the, we go back to the story of many farm lab. So now we're kind of late 2018, mid 2018. Um, the cannabis market had, you know, taken a little bit of a breather, um, you know, come down from the highs. And, and that was to me kind of an indication, like, look, you got to be careful chasing these things. Right. Uh, but you know, it, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't anything crazy. It was still, you know, trading relatively strongly. Well, mid-2018, you had that Tilray boom. Mid-20... I was, you know what? Or maybe I wasn't late that... 2018. That was like Q3 2018. You had yeah, Tilray. I'm, just... pulling up, I'm pulling up charts right now to remember what was what. Uh, yeah, because Til- remember, late 2018, mm-hmm. you had a little rally. Early 2019, the Afria Short Report came out. Then there was a bust. That's late 18. But let's, let's not get ahead of ourselves. That was late 2018, though. Yeah. That was a short report. But so I think Tilray was late 18. You're talking like Q3 18. Yeah, Q3 2018. Yeah. yeah, but so let's not get there yet. So Q2 2018, uh, I meet up with the the guys from Medifarm and they're going public. And they're going to go public at 85 cents a share. And remember, I'd invested at 30, okay? And the 85 has a warrant or half a warrant at like a buck 15. And so now the valuation of the company is, you know, 85 million. I invested at um, essentially, I think, like uh, the equivalent of, uh, you know, 20 million. So it's already a four bagger. Okay. And I'm getting it at 85 cents. And I sit down with them and the story is so exciting. Abby, I can't help myself. I got to put more money in. Right. 
And at this time, what was happening was all of these private deals would get priced at the IPO and the IPO would come out and it was either up 50% or up 100%. Yep. I remember those days. Not not un- necessarily unlike the IPO market that we have today. You know, not for cannabis, but for tech, right? Yeah. Where tech stocks come out and basically double overnight, right? Mm-hmm. So the lesson people were learning was, hey, like, forget these public companies. That's for the plebs. Go buy the privates, especially right before they go public. Yeah, there was and a whole saying, buy private, sell public. That's good. Yeah, I like that. So, And that was the game. A lot of, you know, smart money i'm using air quotes here was doing that okay so uh 85 cents half word at 115 and i liked what the company was doing they were like look everybody's an lp everybody's growing all this weed there's gonna be an oversupply and they were absolutely right and they're like what you know how are you gonna make vape pens how are you gonna make edibles in california um extracts are 50 percent of the market flowers 50 percent of the market so all the LPs are going to be fighting over 50% of the market. And then all the extractors are going to have the other 50% of the market, right? That was their, this is their pitch. Okay. Um, and nobody's really looking at this side of the market right now. And they were kind of right. I mean, the only other game in town was Valence, Neptune and Radiant Technologies. And, uh, that's, that's a throwback to, to think about those names. Yeah. Um, and, and I think RTI, Neptune and Valence were all public and they were trading, as comparables, much higher than Medifarm. So, you know, when you looked at Medifarm, you went, okay, this makes sense. And the guys came from the pharma industry. So you're like, huh, that's also interesting, right? That they have this pharmaceutical background. So I do that deal in the summer of 18 and it goes public in uh, fall of 2018, Mm -hmm. which lined up uh, with legalization. Legalization uh, it got passed in, I think, uh, I think June or something, or maybe it actually got passed in November, November 17th, I think was the first day of legal sales. Uh, and that was the, that was kind of, if you look, actually track the market when it first legalized November, that was the right before that was like the peak, peak, peak of the market. Mm-hmm. And then it just completely fell off. <laughs> so uh, Medifarm, 85 cent IPO. I'd never done an IPO before. Uh, it was actually an RTO, but you know, same idea. I'd never done one of those before. Um, you know, learned a lot about about kind of how it comes out and all this stuff. Um, you know, went to the launch party. It was pretty cool. Um, and then IPO day comes. I'm so excited. I'm sitting at my computer, you know, loading, 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 loading. Remember, 85 cent round, right? And guess where it IPOs? Where does it IPO? $3. Nice. And I'm just like, I'm like doing the math and I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe how much money I just made. Yeah. Like that was literally the, you know, where, where's my resignation letter? I need to make sure these people know I don't need this job anymore. Like <laughs> it was one of those kind of, you know, you really feel like you're on top of the world. Yeah. And I remember telling my mom that I just did the 85 cent round a couple months before and now it was $3. And uh, my mom goes, why didn't you tell me? I would have put some money in. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. From her so, eyes, what she heard was, hey, you knew about a $3 company that you got from 85 cents. But in reality, if you actually go through it, it's like you uh-huh. took an unprecedented amount of risk. 
Yeah, or or you know the market was really really frothy. Yeah. Oh, and hold on. By the way, legalization in Canada was October seventeenth. I think you said November. 7th. October seventeenth. Sorry. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. October seventeenth. Uh, which is funny because at the time, people were asking like, "Will this be like the new four twenty? Like, will we celebrate this day like it's a four twenty? And uh, the answer is no. Well, <laughs> nobody, no. Hold on. That's not nobody true. cares. No, no, no. Twenty nineteen, October seventeenth, twenty nineteen. You had cannabis two point October seventeenth, twenty twenty. You had COVID. So, you know. <laughs> Maybe October 17th, 2021, we might celebrate it. We'll be a banger. Well, I can tell you from for a cannabis culture perspective, it's not a – people are not thrilled about October. I mean, I forgot. I literally forgot the date, right? Yeah, so, that's true. Right? So yeah. so anyway, the, the point of this is um, I also learned, Abby, uh, about uh, being part of an RTO and not having the shares in your account on day one because um, – you know, maybe the day after uh, labs came out or, or, you know, a week after it already started going down. So we kind of mm-hmm. caught that very tail end. Like we IPO would at just the right time, but then it started going right like down almost immediately after. Yeah. Right. And, and you know, it wasn't that big of a deal because we were up so much, but it was like, oh, you know, you know what? Um, you know, when, and my blended cost at that time was 30 cents, right? Cause I'd gotten it 20 cents and then, um, you know, 85 cents. My blended was about 30. So at $3, I was 10x, right? And I thought, oh man, you know, it would have been nice to sell some, even just 10% and get my original investment out. Yeah. Right. So, you know, even though I came from sort of investment background and I, I kind of was adopting, Abby, your policy here of, you know, taking profits when the time was right. Okay. Like my, my point being that, um, even though I came, you know, came with the idea of, Hey, I'm going to hold this stuff until a certain date. Yeah. You know, I learned very quickly the volatility of the market. And I said, Hey, you know what? This stuff is all great, but it's so speculative that if you can take some profits once in a while, you know, you can really play these dips kind of up and down. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, quick little aside here, all the guys who did Medifarm, like all, all our sort of, fr- our, we had a little friend group that did Medifarm. We were so excited. We were all such geniuses, right? And all of our friends are asking us, what's the next one, et cetera, et cetera. We had a WhatsApp group called uh, Deals, Deals, Deals. <laughs> and the whole point was to take this Medifarm win, take some of this money that we made, and do it again. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Right? And Abby, I'm sure lather you... and repeat, man. Exactly. You've lived through this, right? Oh, so... yeah. I'm still living through it. <laughs> <laughs> so there was one guy in our group. And, um, he's not even a particularly wealthy guy, but he put, he like took a mortgage. He took like a line of credit on his house. He went big into labs and you know, when it IPO, he looked like a genius. And what he said was, he's like, why are you guys in such a hurry to sell? You know, the stock is going to go up, you know, it's going to go up. And I was kind of taken aback. I was like, you know, this guy seems pretty smart, but he's not a financial guy. And I was like, what does he know that I don't know? You know, and, and the funny thing is, Abby, I never really asked him. I never really sat down with him and said, hey, man, like, why are you so confident it's going up? You know, like, what's the, and, you know, he would say generalities. Like, well, all the good stuff hasn't even come yet, right? We don't right. even have vape sales yet. We don't have this yet. We don't have that yet, right? But, you know, when the market, we're going to fast forward here a little bit. When the market came back to life, um, Medifarm ended up being, in 19, one of the golden boys in the market. For sure. Right. And that Went was to a four hundred and fifty million dollar valuation, I think. 
Oh, actually, even higher than that. that. Up to six hundred. Bigger? No, no, yeah, it's it close to a bill. Hmm. Like at its peak, it was probably seven hundred million, give or take. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. I remember it being six hundred. I remember that. Yeah. So so you know, it had roughly hundred million shares outstanding. At, at you know, at its peak, it traded close to seven dollars Canadian, six dollars Canadian. They raised a bunch of money at five fifty. Um, right. So, but the point just being that when this stock went from three bucks and it went all the, like, and Abby, we'll, we'll talk about this in a second. So after the Afria short report, it went down, uh, from $3 to 85 cents. So it IPO at 85, sorry, it, we raised at 85, IPO at $3 and went back to 85 cents within three months. And then three months after that, it was a $6 stock. Well, I mean, look, listen, I, I still, as you're saying this, like, you know, I'm trying to recall that whole strategy because I jumped on that train later on. Um, I'm getting and, myself like PTSD, like listening to this, <laughs> telling this story. <laughs> Those were great times. I still remember that. Those were great times. And your buddy was right. The best was still to come because 2019, October 17, 2019 was Cannabis 2.0. And that was, um, that was why Valens Labs and even Radiant and Neptune and we had oils, you know, the competition started to come into the extra extraction space and LPs were burning money and extracts had insane profit margins. And, you know, the, the story was getting really rosy. And then, you know, there was a really big hype coming in there. I still remember going to conferences and meeting those guys. And those guys were literally rock stars. Literally, literally rock stars. And the events, I mean, they were sold out like, yeah. like a rock concert. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'll, I'll say a big you know, that experience with labs, right? Going from 85 cents to three bucks and then kind of tra- tracing backwards. Uh, but seeing the opportunity, seeing the opportunity of this private company. No, I remember, you know, I remember investing in labs in late 17 and all of 18. I remember just like every couple of weeks, I would Google Medifarm. I would search it on Reddit. I would Google it. I would search it on Twitter. Every single thing I could think of, just search Medifarm, zero information. I remember when it was coming out for IPO and, and I, you know, the little bit of talk here and there and people were like, ah, don't, don't worry about this one. There's better stuff, blah, blah, blah. And then seeing it go from nobody to rock star overnight. Yeah. Right. And seeing that. So if, you know, if you think about it now, living through several different changes in mentality, it taught me that, you know, what the crowd is saying or, you know, is not always right. And sometimes people just, you know, you can be very easily ahead of the curve. And that's where a lot of the gains happen by just being right. early and ahead of the curve. Right. It's easier said than done for sure. Like, no question. Yeah. No question. And, so, and, and sorry, and to go back to when you were searching for Metafarm and why nobody was sort of going into a pre IPO, you got to remember, right. The main sell was funded capacity. That was the main selling feature for all these deals. Metafarm mm-hmm. didn't have that. Their whole thing was low CapEx, low OpEx, high growth margins. That wasn't a thing that the cannabis industry was looking at at that time. Right. And at the time, you know, their whole thing was they were they were all about margins, profitability, and efficient allocation of capital. You're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. And that just wasn't a thing back then, right? Um, it didn't need to be a thing back then because there was so much money that was coming into the space. Great point. The money was just flowing, right? The money was just flowing and flowing and flowing. And that was kind of their point, like, there's too much money getting allocated to growing flour in these gigantic facilities. You know, what about the extraction? Right. Right. And that was, you know, the wave that they caught. So 
I lived through this $3 stock that I didn't have in my account because, you know, the certificate hadn't come through yet. Then by the time the certificate came up, it was like a $2 stock. And I was like, all right, well, I'll, I'll wait a little bit. And then, you know, the Afria short report comes out in December. It says all these terrible things about Afria, corporate governance, et cetera, uh, completely kills the sector, kills all the momentum. And overnight, it was like nobody wanted to touch these stocks anymore, which was kind of eye-opening, right? It was like, you know, there was a disconnect there. So either, you know, either something like something didn't make sense how these could be the hottest stocks one minute and then post legalization suddenly they were worth substantially less than they were pre-legalization right seeing that speculative bubble pop um that was really really informative right just living through that and watching you know all this money i had made in labs get deteriorated back down um, now it was still, you know, almost three X on my original investment. So I was okay. And remember I had sold off my free and canopy at big gain. So I was like, okay, this right. isn't so bad. Right. Um, so lesson learned there was how things work in the heat of the moment. So when things are going up, there's always a reason you can justify for why it's going to keep going up. And when things are going down, there's right. always a reason you can justify for why it's going to keep going down, right? Everybody, when things are really hot, they say, man, I can't wait for the dip. I'm going to buy the dip. Then when the dip comes, they go, whoa, whoa, whoa hang on, hang on. Uh, you know, now things are scary. This could keep going. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's a very, ra like what you just explained there is a very rational thought, right? I mean, like, look, let's go back to that example that you just used, the late 2018 one. So, pre afria short report you had this you had valuations that were getting quite high you had already people getting okay things are getting overheated you had legalization happen in canada which was a, which was really the last catalyst right so there was there wasn't really any real catalyst after that no short term immediate catalyst you had people sitting on large gains you then had a, an abysmal rollout in canada they only legalized dry flour the the dispensaries were all behind there was you know a lot of uncertainties that were there from the government perspective and then now you sort of uh take on which was the the needle in the haystack or the straw that breaks the camel's back whichever uh, metaphor you want to use probably the straw that breaks the camel's back that one makes more sense um then you have the afria short report come out right um that to me when you look at when you look at all that happening in one thought in one time that's why the bubble burst and so when when you have this sharp decline in prices it's really tough to justify getting in Right. And so, you know, I've, I've always been saying, okay, look, I'm, you're never gonna catch the top. You're never gonna catch the bottom. So, you know, what, what I, what I look at is when I see these prices go down, is you look at some, you know, you've got a basket of companies that you use as, as an indicator. And at that time it was, you know, the big, the Canadian LPs. Um, I didn't the even big have five. Labs. That's remember that they used to call it the big five LPs. Yeah. 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 And I didn't even have labs or any of those guys in, in, in the indicator. And once you started seeing those guys sort of, they had, they, they had a couple consistent green days, volume started picking up. Then I was like, okay, look, I'll, I'll, they're still dipped, right? They haven't fully recovered. Then I'll start buying back in. That's my strategy. I know, Manish, you, you're perfectly comfortable catching a falling knife um, and, and you'll buy down as well. Cause if, if you really I have conviction to really, behind, yeah. yeah, if you really have conviction behind the name. So, I mean, like when, when, when you're, when we're talking about this and we see, and as you're sort of relaying everything, I'm kind of going through the the motions of everything that happened, right? Because my my story is a little bit different than your story. Yeah, please. Right. So I mean, I I didn't um, 
for me, like my first cannabis trade was, I can't, I can't really even remember. I think it was either Afria or Aurora, but it wasn't mm-hmm. Canopy. But it was one of those two. And it was like, I think 2016, 2017, it was about two bucks. And then it went to like $3 or no, it was like two bucks. It floundered for a bit, went to like two fifty, And then I remember people were like, sell. So I sold. Then I came back in 2017 or sorry, tw- yeah, 2017. And the legalization started happening. Like I didn't really dabble until I would say early 2018. That's when I was really like, okay, like this is the real thing. Right. Um, and one of the ones that I remember, like, you know, I've, I've obviously had, I've had a lot of gains in this sector, but I've also had a lot of losses in this sector. And sure. I tend to, even when we were before this episode, we started looking at sort of um, recalling those losses. And it mm-hmm. looks like, you know, I stored them in, in, in the same vault as my childhood dramas. <laughs> <laughs> All of Abby's childhood traumas are related to stock losses. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and so, um, and so anyways, it was, remember we had like, we, we basically had to like walk through a timeline before I'm like, Oh yeah, I invested in this company. I lost yeah. a bunch of money in that one. And so yeah. the one that like comes to me, I, I have two stories. So one is a public market story and that's plus products. So plus products, I think it was late. I think it was early 2019. Yeah. That's, that's when it was. it was early yeah. 2019 plus products raised $20 million on a convertible debenture. Mm-hmm. They were paying, I think 8% coupon, something, something insane right at that time. And I was like, oh man, like this is a very cashed up company. Insanely they, good. This is a great company, right? right? How can you afford to pay an 8% coupon if you can't? They're way better situated than everybody else. They're going to California, which is the fifth largest economy, largest market in cannabis. You know, what can go wrong in California? It's the mm-hmm. best, mm-hmm. right? Win they're California, gonna be creating... win the world. Now, exactly. You that and, a lot. Yeah. And they're Brands creating... start in California. Exactly. And brands have no borders. So it's like, look, you're going to create this amazing brand down in California. Everyone's going to adopt this product. Why not buy into it? Bought into it. I think it was like five or six bucks at the time. Went up to like $7, came down to like 35 cents. I don't even know what it went down to. But anyways, I got out at like, I think I put a stop loss on that thing at like 60 to 80% loss on it. Um, And I never bought back ever since. Yeah. And And what did did you learn about that? Oh my goodness. You, sorry, you, sorry, you missed a part of the story there because you actually went to California and saw the product. Right. Yes, I did. I did go to California. I did see the product um, and I was and, very impressed. I was and very sorry, impressed. And for, for those who don't know, Plus, uh, they manufacture gummies. They're actually one of the top gummy manufacturers in California. And they, they do these cool little square gummies that sell in like a tin. The tin looks cool. You know, also California doesn't have the same advertising restrictions that Canada totally. does. So first, so seeing that firsthand was really cool. I was really taken back and I was like, oh man, like this is, I, I really, when I, when I came back, I really thought it was going to be a pretty big company. And mm. I think I bought back in. I can't remember if I bought, <laughs> no, you know go, what? Man. I didn't buy back in. I bought, I, I, I didn't buy back in. I, um, the, the other story, the, the, the real reason that I went down to California was because of a private company. I ended up writing a bigger check in that private company. Right. So, so let's just finish out the plus story. So what did we learn from plus? I, I think, I think this is actually where maybe one of your adages come from that a good product is not a good investment. Absolutely. Because plus sure. is a good product. Plus is one of the top gummy brands. Maybe it was, I don't know anymore, but it was one of the top gummy brands in California. And mm-hmm. it was one of the only, or one of the early public companies. So if you wanted exposure to California and you wanted exposure to the edible space, plus was really a great company to own. Right. Theoretically, I'm saying, you know, it didn't work out that way, but that was kind of what made it attractive to investors. For sure. 
And what, what I really learned about this is like, I, I realized how regulation really plays into a company, mm. right? Because California, listen, you get painted a rosy picture, especially back in 2018, 19, mm-hmm. California was the bee's knees, right? They were, it was like the second most mature market after Colorado, fifth largest economy. The numbers were very compelling. Um, the theoretical numbers, the projections, because the projections were, the yeah, market exactly. had just started. Um, and people, you know, but by then, if you looked at, you know, the number of people that are in California, 40 million, you go, this market's going to be bigger than Canada. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And like, listen, the California, um, is known for, for cannabis and, um, starting yep. brands. Yep. So it's like, like everything was very, very, it was just pointing great. So, I mean, you know, I, I learned, I learned a lot. I learned a lot from that trade. One was, you know, government regulations play a huge factor in cannabis, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, that, that theme has carried on right now. And you and I have chatted about this. We talked about Michigan. You said, hey, listen, you know, if you have a large MSO in Michigan, they're just as well run as, as something in Florida, but because of the rules that they're playing in, the margins are significantly less. Well, we were talking specifically about Gage. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Gage, I've said multiple times, excellent company, really big fan of what they're doing there in Michigan. But I looked at the reggae and I passed on it. Mm-hmm. And some people interpret that as me saying Gage sucks. No, Gage is a good company. But just because it's a good company, you know, doesn't mean you buy it at any price. And the reggae was done at a price. I can't remember the numbers now. I think it was like 350 million USD was the, when you work it out, you know, the fully diluted market cap might be mm-hmm. higher now. I don't know. Um, and I just said at the time, I compared it to where the financials were. And I said, and because it was Michigan, because it was Michigan, which is a more competitive market, I said, I'm going to pass on this. And I have a feeling this reggae financing, when this comes public, I could have an opportunity to buy it cheaper. Yeah. Right. And that was one of the lessons I learned, you know, from my experiences with companies like Medifarm, which is the IPO can be scorching hot. You know, people can get really excited about these IPOs and they want to buy it at any price. But then two or three weeks later, they forget the company ever exists. And suddenly it's not worth anything to them. Right. And we saw that with Verano, which was very exciting. Hot market came out. It was like, you know, 30 bucks Canadian. And, you know, I bought it on the open market at 22 Canadian a couple of weeks later. Yeah. Right. Gage came out at like, I think it was, I can't remember what it was now, three bucks Canadian or something. Yep. Now it's back down to like two something, which is the deal price, the original reggae deal price. So it just, you know, it just goes to show you that, and Gage, by the way, I would buy at the right number. I just haven't figured out what the right number is yet. Right. No. And, and Gage is, again, like you said, a really great company. It's just look at the playing field that they have to play in. It's very exactly. different than from California, than from Florida. Right. Exactly. Um, and so that was that was a lesson that I had learned from Plus. And then the other thing was the challenges that California had. You know, we did an episode, I think, after I came back from one of the California trips where we talked about, you know, what I learned sort of being in California. And California is a very tough market. California is not one state. Like, it is literally, like, literally one state. But if you actually go from city to city in California, the demographic changes insanely. Yeah, there it's are very re- regional because of the, how big it is. For sure. There are Republicans who are very right-wing in California, and there mm-hmm. are Democrats who are very left-wing in California. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. I just assumed mm-hmm. that California was all Democratic. It was it's, all hippies and people in flip-flops. For and, sure. that's could not be further from the truth. Right. Right, right, right. right? And, so, um, so, sorry, maybe quickly you could, you could just give a little a little bit of background on that private deal you talked about because I think it's a really important story. Yeah, so the private deal um, – <clears throat> Uh, I'm, I'm not going to disclose the name, but so the private deal, 
was done. We'll call it Abbey Streets. <laughs> I'm kidding. Don't call it that. We'll call it, we'll call it Priveco. So <laughs> the Priveco that I invested in, it was in summer of 2019. Okay, right. that's when the roadshow kind of came through town. Prior to this, everybody who kind of came across, like through Bay Street was, we're going to have the largest grow. We've got the fully funded capacity. Extracts is where you want to be. They weren't the most polished. They came in very, they, they were operators. There weren't too many capital market CEOs that have come through. Now this Priveco comes through and they are impeccable. Very, very well-spoken. Polished. Very well polished, an impressive resume. The deck had Coca Cola, Jeffries, Lloyd's, like financial institutions, established CPG brands, uh, even highly regulated, uh, uh, highly regulated sectors as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. And so they painted the picture that listen, our expertise are going to transfer over very well because we uh, we know how to a structure deals. B, we understand the market better than anybody else does from a financial perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we've taken a mile high view and we can, we've gotten granular and this is where we're going to sort of go. And every question that you asked, they had a response. Um, it was a long-winded response. <laughs> Didn't always answer the question, yep. but they had a response and it sounded good. Um, I mean, it, look, was very, I it was a very well thought out plan. It was a very well thought out plan. That's exactly what it was. It, it was, was a like very, a, a banker's wet dream. Absolutely. That's exactly it, it was. A, it was a banker's wet dream. There was a whole bunch of creative M&As that were on the books. You know, you take these spreadsheets, you add up all the numbers, the run rates for revenue were going to be impeccable. Uh, and it was just everything you could possibly want. Right market, right sector, right team, everything lined up. Then, you know, we closed off the raise. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, come on down. Let's go take a look. We go down to take a look. We realize, okay, like, you know, California is actually a very challenging market. There's, there, each municipality has their own laws. So we started getting more into that. And, you know, they they had a response to that. They said, okay, well, we read, read all the laws. We have a big legal team that we've sort of kind of gone through. And these are all costs that are sort of being like, you know, when, when someone tells you they have a big legal team, it's like, oh, great. Like, the legal bills are high. Yeah, remember, who's paying for that? Exactly. And they have no revenue so far. Um, they didn't, they, it was a distribution company, basically. And they wanted to be the Amazon of cannabis. They had a B2B model. And then they were going to increase, like, if, if, if anybody knows about the B2B model, margins are razor thin. Distribution, Especially in California. Exactly. And distribution is extremely difficult. And then they had an answer for that by saying, okay, hey, we're going to have a B2C model where we're going to be selling directly to the consumers. The consum- by, by doing that, we're cutting out some of the middlemen and we can sort of increase our margins. Let's extrapolate this model. And, you know, every single question that you had, uh, uh, every single question that you had, they had an answer for. Um, but it was all theoretical. It was all projected. Right. And they raised capital at the height of the cannabis market. So I can't fault them at that. Um. And then what ended up happening was the reality sunk in. Mm-hmm. The market corrected. The business plan showed the valuations on all these M&As that they were doing, and most of them, they were already well underway, were no longer creative. So that's either A, you pull out, you're getting mm-hmm. sued, and you're losing all the money that you've sort of invested into it already, mm-hmm. or B, you just pick it up and then try to salvage what you can out of it. Mm-hmm. And so in some cases, they had to cancel some of the M&As. In other cases, they sort of had to roll it up. They had to pivot their business plan quite a bit. 
And I will always give management credit for this. They all senior staff did not take all C-suite did not take salary. That's that's big. That's huge. They cut their burn rate down um, by almost seventy five percent, which is massive. They stopped paying those lawyers to read those documents. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows what they did? But you know, when when push came to shove, shove they shoved back. Right? They really said, "Okay, we're going to make this happen," and that's what you expect from a well. Like that's what you expect from a very like from a professional team with what they had done. What they missed was they didn't have that cannabis culture. Mm. Right? They didn't. And, yeah, go ahead. No, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I mean, the, the story doesn't stop with, you know, Abby losing money on the deal. This, this, he happened to bring the deal to one of his good friends uh, and convinced me to invest in the deal as well. So we lost money together. Well, uh, I haven't sold yet. So I haven't lost yet. <laughs> well, good for you. I haven't uh, sold yet. Right. So but, usually, but usually so when sorry. I bring a deal to somebody, I won't sell before then. Yeah, fair enough. But, but, you know, to be fair to them, that, that was a capital intensive business model they were trying to put together. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they were close, they closed that deal as the market was softening. And, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the model they envisioned was to be able to go out and raise, raise, raise. Right. But suddenly it flipped and then we could, they couldn't do that anymore. Right. And the market flipped. And this is a, a lesson. The music eventually stops and, then people came back to reality and financials mattered, margins mattered, cash flow mattered, and they didn't have any of that. Well, because they couldn't tap into the capital markets anymore. Well, and, and they had a strategy which, like, you know, the, you know, if you want to be an everyone wants to be the Amazon of XYZ, right? But people forget Amazon was, you know, a, a money losing business for a long time that raised capital, you know, six, you know, again and again. And I don't know Amazon that well. Well, hold on. They had they had an answer to that. And their answer was, well, for in order for Amazon to exist, there had to be a FedEx, and we're actually building up the FedEx. Right, which is a fair. great answer. Well, it's a great answer. I mean, surface level, it sounds great, but ultimately, the problem is you need a lot of cash in order to keep that thing going. Oh, for right? sure. And when the market dried up, it wasn't there. So what that taught me was the importance of you know margins and cash flow, because ultimately, as long as you're cash flow positive, your stock price you know, you can survive a low stock price. Yeah. Right. When you're burning cash and, and raising cash is essential to your growth. Yeah. Um, you're going to be in a really, really tough spot. And then investors who invested at a dollar. Well, you know what? You know, that made sense on a valuation basis. But now we have to keep raising, raising, raising. And we have to do it at progressively lower numbers and the market cap keeps inflating. Right. Right. So that's just sorry to cut you off. But that's kind of to be fair to them they caught a really, really bad time for what they were trying to do. Absolutely. but And to give them credit, I mean, they did they did get the company public, which was yep. great. So there was a liquidity event because a lot of private companies at that time never went public. A lot of them pivoted. Totally. They, some of them, most of them went belly up. So they they delivered on what they were going to say. And, you know, mm-hmm. I, I mean, look, listen, it's a very challenging business. I, I don't, I'm giving them some more time. Um, but, you know, ultimately I do think that, uh, this is going to be one that hurts a lot. And I think this might be my biggest loss that I'll be taking because I'm down, what, 60% on that position? Well, thank you for sharing that. And it was yeah. also one that you had a lot of conviction in. So you I had a lot happy. of conviction behind that. I had a lot of conviction behind that team. And you know what? I learned the most lessons from that deal of everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, I always come on here and say, look at clean balance sheets, uh, barriers to entry, uh, and good management teams. And they, they had all that. I mean, they had a, I guess I they say a, clean cap table, but yeah, they had a clean cap, cap table, table, good management um, team. And I mean, the barrier to entry was 
the complexity and also the amount of capital right and, yeah, they needed. But... Little did we know the barrier was going to keep them out as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. When they built the moat, the uh, they were outside of the camp. They were outside of the moat. <laughs> the drawbridge wouldn't come down. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, no, but like they built the moat, they built the castle, they ran out of money for the drawbridge. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But no, listen, I mean, like ultimately, um, it taught me a lot of lessons, and again, really the importance of, uh, of 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 really understanding what it is you're investing in and why you're investing in it, right? And the and, risks, like what and, and the risks that were, and and also hold on, there's this one thing that we don't really talk about, and I think you've talked about it a little bit. There's that book that you're reading. Um, by Howard Marks, who talks about uh, market cycles. Yep. I've quoted a couple times. Yep. It's very important to be cognizant of where you are in the market cycle when you're right. making an investment decision. Right. Right. And um, at that time, we were at the, it's impossible to know you're at the peak, but at that time, we were in a very frothy market when we wrote those checks. And the business model that we sort of invested in, we were along, we weren't a core cannabis company. It was like you were along the edges. Right, you're an ancillary company. Like you're, you were, you know, not the yeah, ex- yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, you were. Yeah, exactly. You were, you weren't plant touching, so you're sort of ancillary. And when that capital dries up, you guys like are the first to go, especially if it's a capex business. And that was another thing. I think. Well, I think Canada really taught us about that, about how important it is um, to understand the balance sheet in terms of profitability, in terms of revenue, in terms of EBITDA, why all that is important when sort of liquidity dries up. Right, and why burn rates matter. Sort of Canada taught us that, um, and that those lessons sort of, you know, worked out. I hadn't learned them at the time, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> those lessons would have been great to know prior to that investment. But no, and just you know what, don't get swept away from the CEO. CEOs are there to sell stock. They're there to sell companies. Their interest typically um, is not the same as your interest, even though that you know they might have skin in the game. They're going to believe in their product better than anybody else and ask the tough questions, Manish. And th- this is one thing that I really love about your level of DD is you ask the tough questions, right? Um, it's probably why well, nobody it, ever it, wants to hang out with your parties, but you probably, uh, yeah, most likely. But, uh, yeah. but you know, the, but the thing is like, it, you know, to put one on top of that, it's knowing the, knowing the questions to ask. So, you know, people think maybe there's a, there's a list of, you know, magic questions, but really, you know, if you have really deep knowledge, it's, you know, if you try to develop your, your sort of cannabis IQ as much as you can, then I always say, like, I always try to just understand what is the nature of the business? Like, what are they trying to accomplish? And in this business, which was a very heavy B2B business, um, it was capital intensive and margin light, right? So, you know, the, the, you know, once you understand the industry and, you know, look, I invested in the business, not a lot of money because I wanted to, you know, I, I shared with you my concerns at the time. And so I invested kind of a small amount just to kind of keep track of it. Um, and I'm glad I didn't go bigger at the time, right? But, uh, you know, once you understand what they were doing, you'd say, look, one of their risks is if the market turns on them and they can't raise this capital forever, it could end up being really painful. Right. And and so that was, you know, the the CEOs, they always believe they can do it, right? Yeah. They always think they're going to be able to pull it off. And that's, you know, Steve Jobs used to talk about a reality distortion field where, you know, if he told people he was going to create the largest, the most valuable company in the world, they would have said, you're, you're nuts, right? Um, but he did it, right? And right. sometimes it's by just really having a warped perception of reality and saying, no, 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 I can do this, right? So most CEOs have that in them. They believe they can do it, right? But 
your job as an investor is to kind of take a step back and say, do I think they can do it? How hard is it going to be? What are the pitfalls? And am I getting paid appropriately for the risks that I'm taking? Mm-hmm. Right. So a lot to unpack there. But, you know, as we're getting to the end here, I just want to kind of um, speed through some of the lessons. So, so, Abby, maybe you can just share. And by the way, what you just shared is a great example of people send us emails a lot and say, um, oh, my God, that deal that you had, you know, you're so lucky you got to invest privately. That's where all the money is made. And I'm like, well, sometimes. <laughs> yeah, it's true. If the company is good, ends up being a good story, then, yeah, you do. You usually do pretty well. Yeah, but I mean, there's a whole flip side to private investing where you can lose a ton of money and be stuck sitting and holding it for a long yeah, period for a of long time. period of time yep which could be an advantage sometimes it could be a disadvantage at other true, times true true um I mean, the, the biggest lesson i learned aside from the same lessons i learned with plus products is uh it's really being cognizant of where you are in the market cycle when you're making mm. private investments and understanding liquidity more or less got it okay i'm going to rattle through some of um my lessons here and by the way with medifarm I rode that thing from three bucks to six bucks. I trimmed along the way, all the way up. The guy in our group who knew it was going up, you know, he was like, I was like, my, my God, this guy is way smarter than I thought. And, uh, you know, I started listening to him for advice. I was like, what, what is he saying? Right. And then when the stock started going down, you know, I was buying back in. Right. And I was telling everybody here, man, I really like where this is. The financials were the really interesting part because on an EBITDA basis, they were trading at, you know, I can't remember what it was, but let's say it's 20 times EBITDA. All the other companies were trading at like 20 times sales. They didn't even have EBITDA, right? So that gave me the conviction to keep buying. Um, and the thing just kept cratering. And what the lesson I learned on the, you know, the lab's business fell apart and the financials fell apart. It was two things. One, not understanding the context of where the, how their numbers were generated. Mm-hmm. And the context was that, you know, this was a time when LPs were flush with cash and they wanted to show, they wanted to get the um, extracted product on their books to be ready for 2.0, yeah. right? Because they wanted to be first out of the gate for 2.0. So they were paying an arm and a leg for it. Um, so, you know, the business not having the moat around it, it was with enough money, it was, you know, it was replicatable. And the the lab star rose so far so fast that, Everybody suddenly wanted to be an extraction company, right? And even companies like Afria and uh, WeedMD, suddenly they pivoted and said, well, we're going to have a giant extraction center. We're also going to be an extractor. We're going to be an LP plus an extraction company. Right. And there was so much money floating around and and extraction is so um, capital efficient that, you know, the business model was replicated again and again. um, And that's, that's what ended up killing the business in the end. And what I learned about that guy, by the way, um, you know, he looked like a genius on the way up. He didn't look so smart on the way down. And eventually he quietly sold all his stock around a buck 80 or something. Um, I mean, he still walked away with a win. He still walked away with a win. But I'll tell you something. He let's just say he's not a guy who took that lesson and learned from it. I think I think he'll just walk away and be bitter about it for a long time. Uh. And, um, you know, obviously still did well. Right. So kudos to him. Um, but, uh, it, the lesson, one of the lessons I learned was that, you know, um, and this is not about him in general, it was about a lot of promoters and promotion I saw in the industry. It was empty cans rattle the loudest. And a lot of those people <laughs> I, I read, I like that saying, yeah. yeah, it's a great one. A lot of people I, I read on, you know, Reddit or saw, you know, doing videos and interviews was either paid promotion, people who didn't know what they were talking about. Um, uh, it's okay to be wrong. 
I mean, that happens a lot in a nascent industry. It's okay to be wrong. But those people were wrong. They never admitted it. And they either just kind of went away quietly. And now they're back, by the way, talking about how they were always right. Uh, or, you know, they, they were they were wrong and they never learned from their lessons, which I think was a big mistake. Which, and, the and, promoters or the investors? No, the 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 investors, I think. Who, oh, okay, who were, okay, gotcha. You know, who were there. And, and I mean, look, you see with what happened today with Afria, a lot of people still haven't learned. They still haven't learned how to read a financial statement. They still haven't learned, you know, that a, a, there can be a good company. I think Afria is actually a good company in Canada, but it's not worth five billion US. No, right? It's it's combined with Tilray. You know, maybe they'll do five hundred million of cannabis revenue. They're not worth ten times sales. It doesn't make sense. For sure. People and actually, you said learned. one before you brought along your next lesson there. You said one thing there that was really good that I think needs to be re, uh, restated. When you said, you know, it's important to understand a balance sheet, or it's understand to important. Uh, it's important. It's important to understand financials, but it's also important to understand how you're getting to those financials, mm. right? From from Metafarm Labs, and that's something that um, you know, a lot of you you watch YouTube videos or professors they don't really teach you about that. So maybe we should do an episode on that. Well, I mean, it's hard to, yeah, I mean, it's, the thing is, there's no one answer, right? Understanding the context of the business, you know, you have to dive down and understand what the nuts and bolts, right? Like, right. like what's happening at the industry level, right? So, so, uh, but yeah, maybe a topic for another day. And last mm -hmm. lesson I learned, and this goes to Constellation and, and kind of what they did in terms of, um, you know, their, their giant $5 billion investment they made in, in uh, Canopy, um, you know, you really can't, there's no shortcuts in life. So you can't just cheat off somebody else's work and expect it to be okay. Uh, just because the checks are bigger doesn't mean they're right and doesn't mean the due diligence was better. And I would tell you that I think that $5 billion investment from Canopy, uh, you know, obviously they took a big risk, uh, but that to me was a, a pretty silly investment. And I think they, they skimped on their due diligence. That $250 million investment, that makes sense to me. It came with a warrant too. Um, that $5 billion investment, I think they just got the FOMO that everybody else has. So, you know, seeing all these institutions, whether it was the investment banks or the promoters or the debt lenders or the institutional investors make all of these mistakes, it just taught me that, especially in a nascent industry, it's not about the size of your checkbook. It really comes down to, um, you know, the level of your understanding and, you know, also luck, right? I mean, they got really unlucky in the Canadian market and how it played out. Yep. I agree with you on that. Okay. Um, we were going to do some questions, but, you know, we're, we're already over time here. So um, I'm just going to do, I'm just going to do one question here. Okay. That, that I, um, that I kind of like that I wanted to talk about. So this question is from Alyssa. Um, and Alyssa lives in New York and is a recent uh, New York medical consumer. So she, or medical patient, sorry. So she joined the New York medical program. She says Cureleaf is her dispensary. It always has a 10 to 20 minute line outside of it. So that, you know, kind of opened her eyes to the, you know, the opportunity in the industry, right? Um, and she had a couple of questions, but uh, she re recently she was buying Vireo a lot. And her question was, how to play New York because it's an expensive state that has very high overhead. Um, you know, her point was, you know, I'm worried about smaller players being in New York because they might not be able to survive. Right. 
so quick answer to this is that there's only 10 operators in New York. Um, I think there's sometimes you can have a good thesis on, on, you know, Hey, New York's going to be a great market and those 10 operators are all going to do really well. But often what you're looking for is a good way to express the trade. So a good way to, you know, for example, if you say Curaleaf is, you know, a, you know, going to be a great operator in New York, that's probably true, but it's unlikely that New York is going to move the needle substantially for Curaleaf. Like Curaleaf is a $10 billion company. I don't think it's going to go to 20 billion just because of its success in New York. Right. Vireo on the other hand is like a $300 million company. If they do everything right, they could easily be a $600 million company just on New York. So um, that's how, you know, when I saying playing New York, obviously all of the MSOs, not all, but most of them are there and that's great. But I think the smaller ones like Vireo, Ascend and Pharmacan, um, I think those are excellent ways to play the New York trade. Now, the risk you take on somebody like Vireo is, are they that good at operations? And ultimately, will they extract the maximum value out of New York? And the answer is probably no. Like GTI and, and Cureleaf will probably extract more value out of New York. But with Vireo, even if they extract less value, it can have more of an impact because their valuation is so low. And uh, lastly, she had a question about interstate commerce. Uh, look, I'm worried about interstate commerce. Commerce, it keeps me up at night. Uh, but it's likely far away. Um, you know, states are not going to want to lose their jobs, and nobody's given me a good answer for that. But what I would say is that, as you know, in that reality where you have interstate commerce, um, you know, that means cannabis is federally legal. That means we're all uplisted. And, you know, there's I a lot think, more catalyst to come before that happens. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. But I, I think also the big MSOs have proven their ability to operate in a really, really tough environment. And you look at somebody like Truly, who has 2 million square feet of grow. Um, you know, they're going to be a powerhouse in the interstate commerce world, right? Uh, you even look at like Cresco and GTI that are operating, you know, 100,000 feet of, of canopy um, in, in, you know, like states like Illinois and Pennsylvania. Uh, that's a huge amount of indoor grow to, to manage, right? Uh, Canada has shown us it's not as easy as throwing up a million square feet and trying to just do industrial harvest, right? It's not that simple. So I actually think even in the interstate commerce model, you know, GTI will figure out a way to be in California and have a giant California grow. So I'm not saying it's going to be all great for them, but it's not the end of the world either. Their expertise and their skills are still valuable. But I would say to you, as that develops, to Abby's point, it's not like it's going to happen overnight. We're going to have some warning. If you look at the new SPAC deal that was done, Mercer Park, that's going to be like a gigantic up to 6 million feet of greenhouse in California. Things like that could end up being an interesting hedge for interstate commerce. But I don't think we need to worry that much about it, but that would be a way you could hedge against it. Yeah, that's an interesting way to look at Mercer Park. And we'll, you know, we'll see how that deal evolves as, as time comes. Yeah, I mean, I, I think they overpaid for that uh, cultivation facility, personally. Well, look, SPACs in general, they usually get the deal by overpaying. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's how SPACs work, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but the, the idea is, you know, if the capital they're infusing into the business can help it grow substantially, which is the idea with Mercer Park, then it could end up being interesting. Right. Right. And let's not forget that the, you know, originator behind Mercer Park, the John Sandelman, 
the last SPAC he did was AYR. That's true. Right? So, you know, I'm not he saying... He knows a thing that, or two, yeah. Yeah, I'm not saying this is going to be a smash. I'm just saying don't count it out either. Keep an eye on it. Yeah. All right, guys. Uh, that's the episode. Abby, any final words you want to lead people with um, in terms of lessons learned? Uh, you know, I think we did a great job covering it, but just to reiterate, you know, like... <laughs> you've i would say be cognizant where you are in the market in the market cycle and you know i've repeated that three times in this episode because i don't think a lot of people are right now and it's it's tough to know when you're at a, you know at the peak and it's tough to know when you're at the bottom but um you know really 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 if you if you entered the industry in march 2020 to now count your blessings and like i can only say it so many times but uh take some risk off the table and it's a great point. And if you entered the industry in, you know, February or March of 2021 and you're feeling the pain, good. Learn from it. Right? Hopefully that what this episode has taught you or, you know, shared with you is that anyone in this industry who has been in for a while has, you know, obviously some wins, but has a lot of losses. And, you know, the key thing is it's okay to make mistakes, but don't make the same mistakes twice. Or, you know, not a third or fourth time, at least. <laughs> yeah. Give us the examples something. we've used. Yeah. <laughs> All right, guys. CINpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time. This podcast is a general communication and entertainment being provided for informational purposes only. It is educational in nature and not designed to be a recommendation for any specific investment product, strategy, plan, feature, or other purposes. Any examples used in this podcast are generic, hypothetical, and for entertainment purposes only. None of Cannabis Investing Network or its affiliates are suggesting that the listener or any other person take a specific course of action or any action at all. Communications such as this are not impartial and are provided in connection with advertising and marketing of products and services. Prior to making any investment or financial decisions, an investor should seek individualized advice from, from a personal financial, legal, tax, and other professional advisor that take into account all of the particular facts and circumstances for an investor's own situation. By listening to this communication, you agree with the intended purpose described earlier. Opinions and statements of financial market trends that are based on current market conditions constitute our judgment and are subject to change without notice. We believe the information provided here is reliable, but should not be assumed to be accurate or complete. The views and st strategies described may not be suitable for all investors. Thank you.